This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Twenty twenty two marks fifty years since the launch of Weekend World, the flagship Sunday political programme which paved the way for everyone that followed. This is the story of how political and journalistic careers were made and broken, even how elections were won and lost. Last week we heard how David Foss came to dominate Sunday breakfast time. Now in part three, the tale of how Jonathan Dimbleby, John Humphreys, and a crocodile had politicians for lunch. Hello and good afternoon. Welcome. Good morning. And Hello and welcome. Good morning. Good afternoon and welcome to On The Record. Never to be forgotten horror show from my point of view. I immediately rang Tony and said, this is ridiculous. We go, oh, what? We're going to have the Prime Minister. I think most people who have dealt with me think I'm a pretty straight sort of guy and I am. I heard him say to me, what do I do next? I heard myself say this, I don't know. <laughs> Live on air! In 1981, MTV was launched. The age of the music video began. The first song they ever played told the story. In the 1980s, slick videos took advantage of the latest TV technology. Computer effects and editing meant TV could be brought to life. David Aronovich was in charge of a new political show that launched in 1988, On The Record. He was eager to open up the box of tricks. We had a great time because we were allowed to do pretty much anything we liked. We spent, you know, we had extraordinary graphics. We really did some weird things with the, with the graphics and we got some good interviews. Perhaps the most memorable graphics on On The Record were the opening titles, where other political programmes included serious images of the host or clips of news events. The star of this show was the On The Record Crocodile. Based on a House of Commons gargoyle, it featured the Big Ben clock tower on its side, with the pointed roof opening up as the mouth of a crocodile which prowled across Britain in stop-frame animation. I confess I distinctly remember being frightened of it as a child. Its creator was the designer Tim Goodchild. We called him Looney because he was so inventive. But the, the idea was that what should be on the titles would be a political animal. What would a political animal look like? And he came back with this crocodile which was the with main tower in Westminster. And it was just brilliant. We had great music. Um, 
what is it, a samba beat or something like that. So you have music to a samba beat with this extraordinary animal. It was the last time anybody was really given that kind of money to do that kind of thing. And we had an enormous amount of uh, enormous amount of fun with it. Behind the scenes, the show became a hothouse for future political talent. The team included BBC stalwarts Nick Robinson and Martha Carney, Gloria De Piero, who'd go on to become a Labour MP, and Michael Gove, later a Times columnist and then Conservative MP and Cabinet Minister. On screen, the show's first presenter was Jonathan Dimbleby. Good afternoon and welcome to On the Record. The body politic is apparently stricken by election fever. He took over in the Sunday political slot from his brother David. Political broadcasting has long been a family affair for the Dimblebys. Jonathan's father, Richard Dimbleby, being the voice of the BBC's coverage of events like the Queen's coronation, the funerals of Winston Churchill of John F. Kennedy and general election nights. As you can see, the great count has already started. And all over the country, the ballot boxes are being rushed to the counting hall. Jonathan Dimbleby himself said that politicians who came on the record saw appearing as something of a challenge. So it became a focal point for all politicians, the big beasts of the day, who sort of felt, and as they had done with Weekend World, they belonged to a generation that thought you had to come on the record and subject yourself to quite a searching interview. You know, the likes of Patton, Major... Blair, Heseltine, Smith, you can, I can trot out an awful lot of names. And they all came on, not necessarily because they knew they were batting on a good wicket. Quite a lot of the wickets were very sticky, but they had a sense of public responsibility. And they could also hack it. They were, they were smart enough. They were clever enough, at least to take seriously a serious interview and to perform for better, for worse. On the record, it was also designed to have some fun, where Weekend World offered up a dry take-it-because-it's-good-for-you analysis of current affairs. On the record knew that humour was also part of political life. The whole idea was that you would do light and shade. So we did two or three, maybe even four items during a, a programme, one of which would be an interview, another one of which would be... So we once, so we did Stephen Fry and an item on political satire, for instance, which had just never been done by people. I mean, a lot of the things that we did have then subsequently become the kind of staples of other political programmes that you've seen since. Veteran BBC political editor John Cole did a weekly sketch. A professional pessimist said... It's all given from here on, decline and fall. But then he spoils the solemnity by adding with a merry laugh, put me down as a senior backbencher, as if we'd ever admit there were any junior ones. A regular on the show was Michael Heseltine, who often went toe-to-toe with Jonathan Dimbleby. In one case, he was clearly planning to run against Margaret Thatcher, but wouldn't say so. And he came up with this formula, which was... I cannot foresee the circumstances in which I will run against the Prime Minister, to which I came back once, twice, I think probably eight or nine times and said, OK, you cannot foresee the circumstances, but there might well be circumstances. Isn't that possible? And he said, I cannot foresee the circumstances, which demonstrated to everyone, including to those newspaper correspondents who were watching, that he had every intention of running. It was a line that Boris Johnson would use to disguise his own ambitions two decades later. Others had more inventive ways of coming up with lines to take in interviews. Dimbleby recalls a long-forgotten housing minister, the Earl of Caithness. He clearly was so nervous. He needed comforting, not by me, but by the, the producer. And he asked, he was in the studio when he asked this just beforehand, he said, do you think I could have an earpiece so that my principal private secretary, who was there outside, could speak to me down the earpiece? <laughs> and 
he was told gently, honestly, you'll do much better if you just listen to the questions and try to answer them. It being live television, not everything went according to plan. David Ivanovich. The most disastrous moment for me came when uh, Nelson Mandela was released. The whole of the BBC was gripped by which programme and presenter would be on air to capture the moment that Mandela walked free from verse to prison at around 1pm on February 11th, 1990. He is scheduled to come out um, five minutes, ten minutes into our start time, put on the record. So they say, OK, on the record, you can handle this one, you can be on air and take the live feed when Mandela comes out. But after 27 years behind bars, Mandela's moment of freedom will be delayed a little while longer. He finally emerged more than an hour late, which required a lot of padding. Half the films that the BBC was supposed to feed in never came up. So we had mostly this panel and my poor presenter, Jonathan Dimbleby. I was sitting in the gallery as editor. And at one moment, I heard him say to me, what do I do next? I heard myself say this. I don't know. <laughs> Live on air! And as you can imagine... This became a kind of one of these sort of infamous moments in recent BBC history by the, but you know, by the next day, you know, kind of this terrible programme, which and I was the editor of that terrible programme. Poor old Jonathan. I mean, I really let him down. On the records presenter, Jonathan Dimbleby, still has nightmares about it now. I was going round and round in circles, talking to the camera, and there was nothing more to say. Never to be forgotten horror show from my point of view professionally, but I still have the wonderful memory of him walking out uh, with his then wife thinking, ah, oh, something really big has happened. In the end, it was part of history. 72 years old, walking strongly step by step further into freedom. Relations with politicians were changing too. David Aronovich remembers one exchange with John Smith, then Labour's Shadow Chancellor, who had gone to become leader in 1992. And I said to him before the programme began, Mr Smith, is there anything that you want to say on the programme? Because you think, please have something you want to say, because, you know, we're always fighting for headlines here, etc. This is the bit that people don't really know about. You're, you are, and he said, ah, he said, as if he just discovered something, the force of revelations of a meteor just hit him on the head. You want to make the news as well as just report? Yes, of course we bloody well do. Otherwise, they're not going to keep us on. They're not going to commission us anymore. We won't be here next year. This is The Sunday Shows at 50. Next, a real political crocodile enters the On The Record studio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Sunday shows at 50. After five series in 1993, Jonathan Dimbleby quit on the record. He would go on to launch a rival show on ITV called Jonathan Dimbleby the following year. The BBC turned to John Humphreys, who'd been presenting the Today programme for six years, where once on the record had been part of John Burt's mission to explain, now it began to emerge into something more confrontational. Humphreys took his lead from that crocodile. I, I sort of assume it was meant as a message to politicians that tread very gently when you come on this programme, because we'll snap you in two unless you um, answer our questions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but apparently not. They, they just thought it was a rather good image. Humphreys developed a reputation as a snapping crocodile himself and was criticised for being too aggressive. Was I too combative? I think not, because the politicians wanted to do it. They enjoyed doing it. They had, well, sometimes they enjoyed it, sometimes they didn't. Um, but they had uh, plenty of time to talk and this is the point this is the thing about a program like on the record you haven't got five or six minutes you're there for as long as it takes and it sometimes took the entire program i would sometimes have 50 minutes five zero minutes with a politician talking sometimes about a fairly um a fairly arcane piece of policy although we thought it was important uh, and um and they were up for that and that's that's what i think made it I think, an important programme because you weren't just trying to beat them up and show you know, you know you had bigger balls than they did. In December 1996, six months before the expected general election, embattled Prime Minister John Major summoned John Humphreys to his home in Huntingdon. Aren't you also just a bit fed up with it all? You've been there a fairly long time now. Don't you sometimes say, oh, this is a lovely place to be hunting, oh, that nice garden out there, a nice <laughs> conservatory that was... Don't you think, oh, for heaven's sake. Well, I love politics, sir. Uh, that's the point you need to bear in mind. Yes, I've been there six years. It's been very good six years. I look forward to the next six years. There's still a lot to do. So if you think I'm thinking of packing my bags and walking off, then you're wholly wrong. On and on and on and on. <laughs> you're wholly wrong. On the record played a role in the election campaign too. Although Major and Blair never went head-to-head, their deputies, Michael Heseltine, John Prescott and the Lib Dem Alan Beath did square up in a special on-the-record debate, which by the end descended into a shouting match. The whistle's gone. Please. The whistle's gone. The whistle's gone. The whistle's gone. John Prescott. Michael Heseltine, Alan Beath, we have run out of time, I'm afraid. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Like a millionaire, he wants minimum wages. That's the real end of the... The real end of double standard. The real end of If you can hear me, that's it for this week. By next Sunday, we shall have a new Prime Minister, or not, as the case may be. In truth, by that point in May 1997, everyone, including John Humphreys, knew there would indeed be a new Prime Minister. A new dawn has broken, has it not?
In May 1997, Tony Blair swept New Labour to power on a landslide, a breath of fresh air after years of Tory sleaze. Yet within six months, something didn't smell right. It emerged the Formula One boss, Bernie Eccleston, had given Labour a million pounds before the election. Within days of Labour's victory, it was announced that tobacco advertising would be banned for all sports. But then in November, Formula One was given an exemption. There followed 10 days of torrid headlines, questions about whether the donation played a part in the decision, even promising to return the money, didn't end the row. Blair's future, I think it's fair to say, uh, was at stake. I mean, he was in serious trouble. Peter Mandelson was Minister Without Portfolio and a close advisor to Tony Blair. The Eccleston affair was both extremely difficult and extremely unfair. You couldn't find a cabinet member for love nor money who would go on and defend the government. Mandelson thought action was urgently needed. I immediately rang Tony and I said, this is ridiculous. We cannot keep on like this. You're going to have to put this to bed. He said, OK, let me think about it overnight. And on Saturday morning, he, Alistair Campbell and I uh, had a discussion about whether he shouldn't just take the whole thing on the next day on Sunday morning with John Humphreys. And then at about, I think, four o'clock in the afternoon, the phone rang. It was Alistair Campbell, who was, of course, Tony Blair's right-hand man. I can't actually repeat on this programme the exact words he used because his language was sometimes a a little um, florid. But he said, I suppose you, XXX, want to do Tony tomorrow, do you, in his usual graceful style. And we sort of said, yeah, well, probably. Oh, what? We're going to have the Prime Minister. It it was quite a big moment. And so uh, that was one of those occasions where... I think I stayed there all day and all until bloody night. And we went down to Checkers to do the interview with him the, the following morning. I think it was probably the best, certainly the most um, reported interview that we did during the time that I presented the programme. So on that Sunday morning, Humphreys and the production team travelled to Checkers, the Prime Minister's country home in Buckinghamshire. As the clock ticked down, there was still no sign of their only guest. I didn't um, set eyes on, on, on Blair or Campbell. We were just sort of greeted by the guys who worked there. And uh, I took my seat and uh, there was no Tony Blair sitting in the seat opposite me. This was about three minutes to one. We were on the air at one o'clock and I introduced the programme. Good afternoon from Chequers, the Prime Minister's country home. Do you all know Tony Blair, even though I was sitting there saying, Andrew with me in Chequers is the Prime Minister to talk about the album. No sign of Blair whatsoever. The newsreader did her job. That's the news. Now back to John Humphreys on the record. Um, and I started on my introduction. And when I got to the point where I was saying and praying that all the gods that existed... And with me is the Prime Minister. Sorry, he still wasn't. And then he slided into the chair. At, I mean, not just the last minute, but probably the last few seconds. Watching the footage back now, when the camera cuts to checkers, Tony Blair is talking to the crew. You can turn, this, can you turn that monitor off when we start. I'm here in checkers with the Prime Minister for his first interview since the storm blew up over what has now become known as the Bernie Eccleston affair. For once, the interviewer who gave politicians nightmares had his own moment of fear. I don't know whether he did it deliberately to rattle me. If he did, it certainly succeeded. By golly, it was scary. Now, though, it was time for Blair to be scared. For three quarters of an hour, Humphreys went over the detail of the Eccleston scandal, who gave what to whom, who said what and when. At times, Blair was combative. What I don't want to do 
is wake up one day and find that Britain, the sure. home of Formula One and the Grand Prix, has chucked the damn lot so out. So in other words, in other words, you had done something that Eccleston would have been very pleased about. At other times, he tried to charm Humphreys and then came the key exchange, which would deliver a line which followed Blair around for the rest of his premiership and beyond. Do you believe that as a result of what has happened in this past week or so, you have lost the trust of the British people? Uh, no, I don't believe that. Uh, and I hope that people know me well enough and realise the type of person I am to realise that, that I would never do anything either to harm the country or, or anything proper. I never have. I think most people who have dealt with me think I'm a pretty straight sort of guy, and I am. That one soundbite, pretty straight sort of guy, dominated the next day's headlines. As John Humphreys remembers. I don't know whether he regretted saying it or whether perhaps it um, it got through to the audience in the way he intended it to get through. And he seemed afterwards to be happy with the interview. Alice, of course, was his usual gracious self. I went for a couple with the Blairs, to, to, to Tony and Sheree and Alistair afterwards. And Alistair, again, with his usual graceful touch, oh, you didn't lay a finger on him, did you? I don't know whether he thought that or not, but it, it, it was an important interview. This had been a big gamble for Tony Blair, who remembers Humphreys as being one of the interviewers who would always give him a hard time. So for me, I never particularly liked or dreaded. I mean, the, the, the more combative people, your sort of John Humphreys, Jeremy Paxman's, I mean, you were always aware of the fact it was... <laughs> yeah, you were going to go in and have 10 rounds and, you know, come out fairly battered. But, you know, in the end, you just had to make up your mind that's what was going to happen. And there it is. According to Peter Mandelson, the gamble worked. Actually, it did draw the poison out of it. It did draw a line. Uh, and, 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 and the thing, you know, st stopped uh, developing after that. Uh, but only after he had used this expression about being a straight sort of person, uh, which, which was uh, 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 fine. He was actually, I mean, certainly compared to the present incumbent in number 10. Uh, and, and it put the whole thing to bed, but it had been going on out of control for at least a fortnight before then. John Humphreys agrees. That probably is right. It made every front page the following morning, obviously. But yes. Pretty soon it started to fade. It may have been a success in the short term, but in the future the phrase pretty straight sort of guy was used by enemies and in time some of Blair's own supporters who lost faith in him as his three terms in office progressed. William Haig remembers being on the receiving end of John Humphrey's crocodile bite. When I was leader of the Conservative Party, more than 20 years ago now, you would be grilled by John Humphreys for half an hour. Now, that's an uncomfortable experience. A brilliant, challenging interviewer, really putting you through your paces, but with mutual respect. I thought that was a real, you know, that was something good in our media. I, I think I put John Humphreys at the top of the list for the one I would worry about the most. Not every on-the-record interview was so exciting. In February 1994, Shadow Chancellor Gordon Brown was booked to appear to discuss levels of borrowing and whether he was trying to sidestep rules on the public sector borrowing requirement or PSBR. We were aware it might be a bit boring, but I don't think we anticipated just how boring it was going to be because, boy, Gordon Brown on the PSBR for 50 minutes is not a half a minute, I can tell you. And there was, there was a point that when I sort of considered making a run for it and leaping out of the window and putting an end to my miserable career. For Humphreys, what mattered was that the right people were watching. We used to judge our success or otherwise um, by whether it led the front page of the Times the following morning. 
<laughs> sometimes it did. Usually it didn't. Uh, but but that was that was the test we fed it. On the record wasn't just about politics, though. On one occasion, it broke out into showbiz. On November the 19th, 2000, Humphreys was winding up at the end of the show when... I came off the air uh, one Sunday morning, finished the thing, said, that's it, thank you very much for watching, bye. And who should appear in the studio but uh, Mike Laspel, the presenter of This Is Your Life. And he had the red book with him and proceeded to stitch me up, by which I mean saying... This is your life. Then they took me prisoner and um, held me incommunicado until a few hours later I appeared in the studio and um, my whole life flashed before me. <laughs> it was like a night. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, It's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information